0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 206. Did the Great Heathen Army persecute Christians? This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com. And thank you to new members, Abby, 11-year-old Anna, who's celebrating her birthday, happy birthday, Anna, and kindergartner Gunesh Khan. I can't believe how many kids we have listening to a show that goes into graduate-level detail on the Anglo-Saxons. You kids must be a force to be reckoned with at school. Nicely done. Okay, so last week we covered the events of 869. And just like listening to Brian Adams, it was pretty dire. We have at least one dead Anglo-Saxon king, two Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that are now under the thumb of the Danes, and as far as the record tells us, everyone else seems to have just been keeping their heads down. They may have taken comfort in the fact that at least Ivor the Boneless was gone, and we don't know how many warriors he would have taken with him back to Ireland, or would have left if that one odd report was correct and he died in Britain. But Despite Ivor being gone, the Danes still held East Anglia and Jorvik. Now, there's a well-known story about what comes next for anybody who studied this period. And it goes like this. The Scandinavians, now secure in Jorvik, started to systematically dismantle the institutions of Christendom. In the names of Odin and Thor, driven by pagan fervor, they set about all of Britain's monasteries, nunneries, and churches. Monks were targeted and slaughtered, and the Christianity of Britain faced near extinction. It's a terrifying picture, and it would have been salt in the wound for a very pious Alfred. And this story suggests that Britain was on the verge of veering off on a course that would have set it apart from the rest of Europe for the next age. A pagan Britain, a Britain of Odin and Thor and Freya. Imagine the terror that these pious monks and priests must have felt when they are faced with a choice between life in this world and a life in the next. I mean, what would they do there? Would they convert to appease these zealous Danes, only to be condemned to hell later on? Or would they fall victim to unspeakable atrocities in this life with the hope of a future spiritual reward? It's a tough choice. And it's a drama that would have rocked the people of Britain to their core. And of course, I would tell it to you with every detail and nuance that the records could provide. If there wasn't one very big problem. I don't think that this story is true. At all. Now, you're not going to find this investigated anywhere else outside of a university with a faculty that specializes in the rise of Danelaw. But this is important because it's one of these moments where we really get to learn what the study of history is all about. This episode is going to dive into the culture of the church and of Christendom and of Danish paganism and learn why this story, one that we've been told for a very long time, might not be any more true than The Lord of the Rings. If you read an older history text that covers this area, you'll probably have read how the English church was shattered by the Scandinavian invasion. It's a very common line. In fact, I can usually tell when a historian, or even a podcaster, has read and relied upon Sir Frank Stenton, because they'll usually say something that paraphrases this statement. Quote, the Danish invasions of the 9th century shattered the organization of the English church. End quote. Many times, they'll then follow it up by pointing out that Whitby, Beverly, Barking, Crowland, Eli, Jarrow, Lindisfarne, Carlisle, Hackness, Thornley, and Peterborough were all wrecked by the Scandinavians. And on the strength of that list, and the statement by Sir Frank Stenton, they'll rest their case and continue repeating the story of how the Northmen persecuted Christians and targeted religious houses but there's a problem with that line of reasoning. A pretty big one. There's hardly any reliable evidence for the Scandinavian destruction of any Anglo-Saxon churches during this period. And many times, the links between religious houses and the great heathen army are based upon spurious foundations, like speculative chronologies put together by antiquarians who lack the level of detail that we now enjoy thanks to improved techniques. This theory rests almost entirely on the fact that records place the decline or destruction of many of these communities in the 860s and 870s. That's kind of it. And then later writers came along and said, oh, well, that was at the same time that the great heathen army was there, so it must have been them. And if we lay it out like that, the two facts right next to each other, connecting them does seem logical, but it's not. Think about it this way. If the Chronicle mentioned that Alfred lost his shiny red bike in 865, I suspect that Stenton and then others would have said, In 865, Ivor the Boneless stole Alfred's shiny red bike, which he had planned to ride to church that very day. And what I'm getting at is that simply being there at the same time isn't proof of causation. And yet many historians simply accept the line that the churches were widely plundered and sacked by the great heathen army, and that atrocities were committed upon their inhabitants, and that this caused an enormous rupture in English ecclesiastical life. It's so accepted that I've read historians who talk about it and don't even bother to cite anything. It's discussed the same way that you might discuss the deliciousness of kinder hippos. You don't need to supply a study that says kinder hippos are delicious. Everyone who's eaten one knows the truth of that statement implicitly. It's a law of nature. And that's how the great heathen army's connection to these churches is discussed in a disturbing number of texts. And I get why. The 8th century records of the Scandinavians in Britain involved, well, plundering the bejesus out of holy sites. Lindisfarne took it in the shorts. Iona got it even worse, and by 849, the monks had packed it in and left. Vikinger bands really liked monasteries. But not for religious reasons. Monasteries were simply where you could get the most amount of plunder for the least amount of risk. It was Piracy 101. But where I think that some of these writers got in trouble is that they confused Vikinger raiders with what the Great Heathen Army was doing. The great heathen army was part of an evolution in Scandinavian adventuring. It was something new. They weren't raiding and going home. They were staying. They were settling these lands. That's wildly different from going a Viking. And if you look at their behavior, the great heathen army wasn't behaving like a Viking or band. They were taking and holding territory. They were setting up puppet kings. They were looking to establish sub-kings and they were sharing out land. Make no mistake, there still were bands of pirates out there causing trouble, but the great heathen army wasn't a band of pirates, and it seems to have been operating quite differently. And with all of these changes in behavior and culture, it's a strange thing for us to assume that they would have been going after monasteries like their forebears had done at Lindisfarne. It's even stranger for us to assume that this was for the express purpose of religious persecution when this had never been part of their motivation before. And there are two things that I want you to consider when thinking about this argument. First, by the time that the great heathen army arrived, 72 years had passed since Lindisfarne. And that's important for us to keep in our minds because 72 years is a long time and cultures change. We're pretty much in the Captain America trying to relate to Tony Stark territory. The second thing to consider is something that I haven't told you about yet. We're told by some historians that the Scandinavians, once they were in Britain, converted to Christianity quickly and easily. Furthermore, we're told this by the exact same historians who also tell us that the Scandinavians were on a monk-murdering rampage. Wait... So the same people who were out there killing monks and executing kings specifically because they prayed to Christ just sort of converted to Christianity like it was no big deal? What? Yeah, according to these scholars, these people who were behaving like the worst elements of ISIS just passively converted to Christianity. You know, like religious radicals do all the time. And seriously, how exactly does that work? Perhaps your experiences differ from mine, but even when friends of mine debate the Star Wars vs. Star Trek question, I have yet to see anyone switch sides. They're all dug in pretty damn hard, and probably will be for the rest of their lives. And that's just a pop culture debate, and hopefully one that no one's willing to kill over. And yet we're supposed to accept that after a brief foray into hunting Christians for sport because the Danes hated Christ so much, suddenly they decide to sign up for the package deal? Come on. Not even the Holy Spirit is that good of a salesman. And to ramp up the difficulty, I doubt you would have had any missionaries actively working to convert the Northmen if they were out there doing all the things that they were accused of. I mean, can you imagine that? Being like, okay, brother, Mferth, I want you to talk to Olaf. Now, I know he has already used all the monks at Jarrow for target practice, but just go out there and do your best. Maybe break the ice with some Ludafisk. You'll be fine. Bullshit. Besides, that sort of evangelism and conversion would require, you know, an organized church. But these same scholars who claim that everyone rapidly slouched towards Christ also tell us that the church was shattered. There's a contradiction here. Now, some of you might be saying, well, it's possible that missionaries were sent from the continent or from the non-Danish portions of the British Isles. And yes, that is possible. And it could fill the gap. But it presents an even larger problem for us. Because why don't we have any records of that? Why don't we have any papal accounts of missions? Why doesn't Asser talk about how Alfred was sending priests to bring the North back within the fold of Christ? Why don't we see Frankish records? I mean, we saw this kind of stuff during the Anglo-Saxon conversion. So if there was a mission, why aren't we hearing anything about it? Consequently, we're being asked to believe that the Danes were murderously hostile to Christians. Sort of. They were also sort of easygoing and converted through the guidance of, I don't know, someone, maybe a ghost. They killed all the monks. Seriously, how does this work? And the conflict in this narrative was driving the lawyer in me absolutely batty. So I did some additional investigation. And critically, there's only one entry in the Chronicle that links the great heathen army to the destruction of a religious house. Yeah. Out of that massive list of 11 houses that I gave you a few minutes ago, and one that many historians tend to rely on, wrote, only one was linked to the Danes in the Chronicle. And that house was Peterborough, otherwise known as Medhamstead. And the case for the Danes using it to roast marshmallows gets worse the closer you look at it. First, The record that links Peterborough to the Danes only appears in the E manuscript, which was copied at, wait for it, Peterborough in the 12th century. No other version of the Chronicle creates that link or includes that story. Just the Peterborough 12th century version. Now, the 12th century was over 200 years after the invasion of the Great Heathen Army. So, the time span that we're looking at is like between now and the American Revolution, or between now and the Napoleonic Wars. Now, to be clear, simply because a record wasn't contemporary doesn't mean that it's automatically fraudulent or should be discarded. However, we would be foolish to not take the timing of the records into account when we investigate these questions, especially when we find contradictory evidence in the contemporary or archaeological records. And we will get to that evidence very soon. But before we get there, the first thing that came to mind for me over the timing and place of copying for this manuscript was this. If we're gonna assume that this story about the destruction of Peterborough was based upon some sort of documentary evidence that the 12th century scribes had access to, where were those documents for the last couple centuries? Why does only one version of the Chronicle have access to them? And what happened to those documents after this version was copied? Unless you assume that they found some missing documents, or they had a plan to keep them as a surprise for a couple centuries just to confuse historians, and then after everything was copied, the family dog ate them, it's kind of hard to imagine how this all came about as the result of a written record. You know? So that leaves us with the possibility that this story was the result of word of mouth. Now, is it possible that the people at Peterborough had an oral history for over 200 years and it remained accurate? Yes, that is possible. I would say that it's a little unlikely since no other version of the Chronicle includes that story of Peterborough, and I would expect oral histories to travel at least a little. But yes, it's technically possible. However, the fact of the matter is that it took over 200 years before that story appeared in the record. And even then, it only appeared in the version that was recorded at Peterborough. The salt in the wound is something that we've already discussed in earlier episodes, that the records show that Peterborough, also known as Medhamstead, had already passed into the hands of the lay lordship long before the great heathen army showed up and that large sections have been converted into a secular residence and fortress. So this story of it being a monastery, and how the Danes had sacked it and killed the monks who were there? Well, not even the land deeds reflect that reality. Apparently, it was secular by that point. And the case for the Danes targeting religious houses gets even worse from here. Because other records pop up at the same time as the E-manuscript of the Chronicle, so the 12th century. And in those records, we suddenly get other additional and rather horrific accounts of Scandinavian violence. For example, in Liber Eliensis, we're told Ivar and Ubba laid waste to the church and community at Eli. Quote, Indeed, when the mob of evil ones reaches the monastery of the virgins, which Athelthrith, the glorious virgin and bride of Christ, built, alas, it invades, pollutes the holy things, tramples, and tears. The sword of the madmen is stretched out over the milk white consecrated necks. So, what the scribe is saying, in flowery language, is that Ivar, Ubba, and their men raped and killed the virgins at Eli and tore down the church. That's awful. But it's also a completely new story that doesn't appear anywhere in the contemporary records. It just springs into existence in the 12th century, right about the same time that the story at Peterborough appeared. And you might be wondering the same thing that I was. What was going on in the 12th century that led to this burst of new accounts of pagan violence upon Christian houses? Well... For one thing, Europe was going through a renaissance. Usually we think about the 15th century as the only renaissance, but political, intellectual, and economic thought was going through a major restructuring in the 12th century. Aristotle, Stoicism, and many other modes of philosophical thought were reintroduced to the West, and that led to immense cultural changes in Europe. There were also new developments in architecture and art and literature. It was an exciting time to be alive but there was also something else that was going on that might help explain the sudden appearance of these accounts of an attempt to overthrow british christianity europe was deep in the crusading period the second third and wendish crusades were all in the 12th century the 1100s were a time of renewed thought and artistry but they were also a time that deified the christian perspective and vilified non-Christians. And that just happened to be occurring at the same time as the appearance of these stories that tell us of the atrocities that non-believers had inflicted upon the good Christian people of the West. In fact, this violence wasn't just against the people. It was against the houses of Christ themselves. And the implication in these accounts is pretty clear. Danelaw and the dominance of the Scandinavians nearly snuffed out Christianity in the Far West. This theme likely resonated powerfully with a 12th century audience. And it would have fit in really well with the savior story that was already present in the form of Alfred. The fact of the matter is that context is important. We can't just look at these documents in a vacuum. We have to look at the time and place that they were written in. And in the 12th century... When the leaders of Europe were working to justify and popularize their adventures in the East, all of a sudden we have these stories of anti-Christian atrocities. At the very least, it's rather convenient. Similarly, in the 13th century, we have Roger of Wendover telling us that crazy story about how St. Abba cut off her nose to save the virtue of her fellow nuns from the sex-crazed Scandinavians. And then they later came back and burned it all down with the nuns inside. You know, because they were evil Scandinavians. Again, it's mighty convenient that these stories just happened to come out at a time when the powerful were trying to motivate people to leave their homes and risk their lives to retake the Holy Land from the heathens. It's almost like they wanted to give them a sense of what was at stake for Christendom, isn't it? Now, as you might have gathered... I find these stories highly suspect, but we don't just have the written record to rely on. What about the archeological record? What evidence do we have to support the destruction of these churches? Well, we do have churches that were abandoned or destroyed. But the trouble with that evidence is that we also have churches that were abandoned and destroyed before and after the period of Viking raids and Scandinavian settlement. Churches getting knocked down and abandoned from time to time was simply part of life all throughout the medieval period. It wasn't specific to the Viking Age. So that's something that we have to contend with before we even begin. How do you differentiate a normal abandonment of a religious house from one that was caused by the Scandinavians, especially when we don't have any clear contemporary record that indicates what happened? It's tough, isn't it? Now, we can try and spot abandonments that happened at around the same time as the great heathen army. And we do have some abandoned churches that have been dated to around the period of Scandinavian settlement. Sort of. But the trouble is that dating is a difficult practice in archaeology. And precise dates, which is something that we would need to create even the suspicion of causation, are something that we simply don't have for many sites. Instead, we have rough sketches which don't really prove anything. And yet earlier scholars, and later scholars who rely on those earlier scholars, often place broad assumptions of Scandinavian violence upon those sketches. For example, Borough Hill was assumed to be destroyed by the Danes, and scholars have said, quote, it would have been an obvious target for the Danes, and once destroyed, must have vanished from the record, end quote. ...but there's no clear evidence for the date of the abandonment of Borough Hill. It looks like the site was occupied from the 7th to the 9th century. But when it was abandoned, is impossible to pin down any closer than about the nearest hundred years. And a century is a long period of time. Furthermore, we don't have any evidence for the cause of the abandonment... ...and yet we have scholars rather casually pinning it on the Danes... ...as if we knew exactly when the monastery shut its doors... And why? Similarly, people have pointed to Monk wearmouth as evidence of this classic story of the Scandinavians' burning monasteries. And they've done that because the archaeological record has shown charred wood and ash. However, the scholars who conducted that examination were careful to point out that it wasn't clear, quote, whether this burning was the result of a 9th century Viking sack or of later Scottish raids, end quote. And that uncertainty becomes critical when the archaeologists were able to identify continued activity at Monk Wearmouth into the 10th century, meaning that it continued operating long after the members of the great heathen army had died of old age. It's suspect, isn't it? And here's something else that I want to point out to you. This particular story is an important lesson on sources, fact-checking, and scholarship. Because Robin Fleming, who is usually really good and someone that I respect a great deal, pointed to this very same study and summarized it as being evidence that the site was abandoned from the 8th century through to the 11th century. And that's flatly incorrect and was contradicted in the very same report that she was citing. Since that report talked about continuing activity into the 10th century. And they were thoroughly unclear on the cause of the burning. So even scholars can make mistakes and get caught up in zombie myths. Also, sometimes they skim papers. They're busy. But of course, I've saved the best for last. And this is what I consider to be the nail in the coffin of the story that the Vikings, in a religious fervor, set to destroy Christianity in Britain. The political and ecclesiastical history of England itself does not support the allegation that the Danes were targeting religious houses and exterminating religious people. Now why do I say that? You already know from earlier episodes that the church in Jorvik continued to operate following its occupation by the Northmen. The bishop of Efevich stayed on, and he became the bishop of Jorvik. So if these Danes were out there engaging in a holy war and targeting Christians... Why would they keep a Christian holy man in their northern capital right from day one, before they even started their slouch towards Christ? That alone just doesn't make any sense. But do you know what else doesn't make sense? When we look to the future and look at major churches in Northumbria and East Anglia, their stated mother churches, the ones that you know they're owing fealty to and supports them, Well, they're often churches from the pre-Scandinavian period. And that's surprising, because given the stories of destruction, it suggests that contrary to the popular tales, churches in Scandinavian-held territory were relatively stable and even managed to maintain their status. And then we have archaeological evidence in the form of burials and sculptures. And in both cases, we find evidence of continued ecclesiastical activity at many religious houses in Danish-occupied territory through the 10th century. It's really suggestive. Now, does that mean that religious life was unchanged under Danish rule? No, not necessarily. Actually, there's a pretty good case that things evolved rather significantly for them. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. But even if we assume that the monasteries became more focused upon agriculture, the fact remains that many of them were still occupied, which suggests that they weren't knocked down and the inhabitants weren't gruesomely slaughtered. And here's a question for you to think about. If the Scandinavians were running around killing monks and kings because they hated Christianity so much, If they were the staunchest of staunch pagans, so staunch, in fact, that they even engaged in religious persecution, despite the fact that their religion allowed for the worship of multiple gods. But if that's how they were, if they were that devout, then where are the pagan temples? Where's the evidence for pagan cults? Where are the sites of Odin and Thor worship? Surely, we'd have some archaeological evidence if these people were that level of devout. And we probably have some records that were talking about the pagan cults that operated in the north and in the east. So where are they? And that brings us back to what we started this episode with. Where exactly are the tales of the Scandinavian conversion? Do you remember the extensive and weirdly business-like discussions of the conversion during the Anglo-Saxon era? Getting them to convert was actually a pretty big deal. And with the exception of Athelfrith... We didn't really have any stories of anglo-saxon kings running around killing a bunch of christians so if the scandinavians were way more hardcore about their religion and way more hardcore against the christians if they were that level of devout if they believed in chris hemsworth that deeply where are the really detailed stories of conversion you know what We're actually going to need another episode to talk about this, because there's a pretty good case that the churches were continuing and evolving under Danish rule, and I'd like time to properly discuss it with you, because this Christian persecution narrative is casually accepted by far too many writers, and I think it needs to be properly and thoroughly discussed, and maybe debunked. So next time, we're going to talk about how the churches probably evolved under Danish rule, and we'll see what we can do about knocking down this really strange zombie myth. But it should be fun. And besides, real history is way better than myths. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can find all our other social media groups if you go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and look in the upper right-hand corner. All right, thanks for listening.